welcome back to another episode of Top 5 with Max and Max. I am Max. I'm also Max. And today we have an incredibly special guest, world-renowned chef Andrew Zimmern. Andrew Zimmern is that guy you probably saw on TV eating giraffe, sheep's brains, you name it. He hosted Bizarre Foods on the Travel Channel. Now he hosts a new show called What's Eating America on MSNBC. He talks a lot about food, politics, culture, how all this stuff intersects. Hey, look, we know a lot about Bizarre Food at Roke HQ with this guy cooking. (laughs) But uh, look, in all seriousness, we have an incredible show today. It's very substantive at the beginning. Andrew's a fascinating guy with incredible stories. Yeah, and I'd say an amazing story. He was a drug addict. He was homeless for a while. Really got his life together. His career took off. Um, also, stick around to the end. We asked him about his favorite cuisine at the end of the show, as well as some experiences he shared with us about his friendship with Anthony Bourdain, which is pretty touching stuff as well. So like, subscribe to this podcast, and without further ado, here is Andrew Zimmern. So where are you now? Are you in Minnesota? I am in Minnesota. Our first question is, you know, everybody knows you and has seen you all over the world. How does someone like you, a world traveler, manage during quarantine? Oh, gosh. It's been an absolute blessing in disguise. For me personally, it's the silver lining that I keep reminding myself of so that I'm not driven crazy by my own restlessness. Uh, Obviously, we're suffering through two pandemics right now. We have a viral pandemic and we have what I call a cultural pandemic. And I don't say that to put it all in a box, but but clearly between election issues, the re-energizing of the commitment so many of us are trying to make to really making progress on the racist inequities in within our country, signal boosted both by the actions of our president, by the terrific murder at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department here in my hometown of George Floyd, and on and on and on. There is clearly a cultural pandemic raging. The worst in my lifetime. It feels in a way even more dangerous than the one that I lived to, through as a young child in the late 60s, early 70s. Well, not that young. I was a teenager in the early 70s. But where I first became aware of these things through, through my parents who were very uh, active. All of this is, is going on and it's terrifically depressing. And, and there's so much anxiety and uncertainty in this country. And it is important for people just to come out and say that, that, that it is affecting me, it feels like I try to wear the world like a loose garment. That is something from a spiritual standpoint that I try to do. It's almost impossible right now. The garment almost feels like an unhealthily weighted blanket that's around me. And it takes energy to march through each day. And in my personal life, I try every night before I go to bed to do a gratitude checklist. That old admonition that, you know, uh, no is a powerful word, right? And you know, it, it saying no to something now means saying yes to something later and all that kind of stuff. I realize that I'm able to be around my office more, interact with people here more. I'm more available to other things. It's not made my accountant or any of the the people in other parts of my business is very happy, <laughs> um, but I'm devoting 25% or more of my time to stuff like this, you know, advancing the social justice causes I believe in, getting active by everything from showing up and cooking at our Juneteenth celebration here in the Twin Cities or 
doing the pop-up that we're doing next week here at in the parking lot of our office to raise awareness for the voter registration day on the 22nd, but also to raise money for uh, three charities that we really believe are, are making a difference in the world. One of the biggest doors in my life closed, which is traveling and interacting with people overseas. That's how I learn. That's how I grow. I think the power of travel is transformative, but I'm trying to duplicate that here by doing other things. I mean, there, there's so much that we would love to get into on that. Also, by way of introduction, we're, we're both named Max. So yeah, I did my favorite part of the whole thing when you guys offered me this opportunity. And by the way, thank you for having me on. I thought, well, this is super easy because I'm not going to call anyone by the wrong name. <laughs> yeah, we've, we, we try to make it as easy as possible. That's the only reason people come on the show. Exactly. Appreciate it. Um, it's a huge hook for you guys. Nice, <laughs> exactly. nice, nice work. Thank, thank my parents and, and his parents. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's so much to get into on that. Um, and, you know, we want to get a bit into your backstory. Obviously, everyone knows you as the Bizarre Foods guy, but there's so much more that we're going to talk to you about. But, you know, one thing, you know, you say there is in terms of social justice and politics and kind of a cultural transformation in the country. One thing we talk about a lot is food. And obviously, COVID has brought this to the forefront of everything, where people who, you know, with high blood pressure, with diabetes, people who are obese are so much more likely to have bad health outcomes from COVID. Yet it's not like a major policy point. You don't have the president standing up there and saying, you know, we've got to get healthy. We have to we have to figure this out. We have to improve equity, whatever it may be, so people are eating better. How do you see that? I mean, how do you see a, an opportunity here for us to kind of recenter and become more health focused? I think you have to take a, a little bit of a step back historically before we sort of come up to, to COVID on this. You have isolated probably the most important talking point of my last six months. Every talking head on every show, podcast, everything has used the, the phrase or something similar to COVID-19 didn't cause X, but it peeled back the curtain on that issue and amplified it and showed us how much work there is to do in that arena. When a boat is sinking or taking on water, the captain and the mate look at each other and go, yep, we, we really should have gotten that bilge and pump system last year when they told us we needed one. And I'm not trying to minimize it or make light of it. I'm just saying it's, it, it's, it's that frantic for me. This goes all the way back to the foundational agroeconomy on which America was created, which was on the backs of the slave trade coming from Western Africa. We have always historically in America had a foundational premise that food labor should be cheap. I mean, you have to remember that because it, it sometimes gets lost in the conversation about the most horrific foundational element of our country, which is the kidnapping, the stealing, the slave trade was such an evil and pernicious activity. But the work that was being done here was agrarian by those slaves. And yes, there was a small percentage used for other things. But what it did was it, it got America, America's economy addicted on the least expensive labor you could possibly have. And it was, it was done in fields and farms. And then later on, that transfers to factories and into restaurants. And it leads all the way up to today, where, as you've heard on the headlines, thankfully, it's come onto the front page of our papers and in the A block of our newscasts, that the abusive conditions in which 
people work in fields, farms, and now factories, right? Because we have become a factory food society to a large extent as well. It is brought to light the horrific abuses in those places, even to the point that we are now pushing people into these factories by mandate of a DPA from the president who, who won't. Same thing happening with his alliances with these Brazilian companies. And by the way, some of those meat companies, the relationship between American meat companies and Brazilian meat companies are often owned by the same giant agribusiness. They have pushed workers into unsafe circumstances, circumstances that were unsafe to begin with and now made more unsafe by jamming people in and having a DPA that doesn't even provide them recourse should any of them be sick through the traditional methods, right? Because there's a DPA, so you can't sue your employer if you get sick. This is not by accident. What So many of us read The Jungle. I had to read it in high school. You sat there and I remember the, the history lesson being that was then it could never happen now. And the truth was in the 70s when I was in high school, it actually was still happening. Now it's gotten worse. And we documented a lot of that in my MSNBC show, What's Eating America. If we're going to be rethinking our food system, and I think it's necessary that we do, we have an opportunity here. When something breaks down, it's not a duct tape job. But when something really breaks, Sometimes the best thing to do is be like, okay, let's stop, pause, take it apart, and put it back together. Our food system is so badly broken right now, whether you look at the seafood industry, the restaurant industry, uh, the factory farming industry, it's so badly broken. And we have been given an opportunity here to pause, right? So many restaurants are closed. The seafood industry is in a massive pause moment, 68 to 75%, depends who, who's polled and information you look at, of seafood, for example, uh, is served in restaurants. So if restaurants are closed and the ones that are open are only doing 25, 30, 40% of volume, the opportunity there to reimagine how we're going to really rebuild something in a different way is there for us. We export so much seafood in America, but we know seafood is extremely healthy. We should be eating more of it and smaller amounts of protein and more vegetables. So we, we actually have an opportunity here if we had the visioning and leadership at the top in Washington and we didn't have the cronyism that we had, USDA and the Department of Ag and all of that going on. We really, because we have political appointees there, we don't have you know, lifetime people who've worked in the field. Sonny Perdue is, and those people are not, they're, they're not lifetime uh, supporters of making us better and improving our food system. This is the time to, to be embracing those big ideas. It's an amazing opportunity for us. Well, you talk about the habit that America as a country got into getting food for cheap cost and yep. then eating cheap food. Correct. And you see a lot of, I mean, you talk, there are bad labor conditions for food workers across the country, as you've highlighted, uh, especially in the last few months, but also the market options for a lot of populations in the country are awful. And it, it's linked to racial inequities in terms of where fast food concentrations exist. And so if you're driving down the street and you see McDonald's with their new Travis Scott burger, you're going to be tempted to get in the drive through and it's every block and there are multiple fast food. So, I mean, where do you see fast food fitting in to all of this and how do we get out of the habit of, 
of Travis Scott burgers and, and supersize me type meals. Fast food is great. Inexpensive food is fantastic. There are many people who suffer from economic poverty. There are many people who suffer from time poverty. I have no business relationship at all with them, so I'm not a hawker. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. When you look at the incredible growth of a company like Sweetgreen that is essentially a group of young kids in college who start a business that says fast food doesn't have to be burgers and fries and unhealthy options. Fast food can be a way for people to come into a place, use their phones and ordering systems, and we can create a order pickup system within the stores that essentially matches the fast food, the traditional fast food model. And when we say fast food model, we're talking about those burger and chicken and taco right. chains and all that kind of stuff that are serving unhealthy food that have sped up. They've used that speed up and mechanized uh, uh, history that we have in this country. And it's just gone down the wrong rabbit, you know, with dollar meals and stuff like that. But what Sweetgreen has shown is that you can do it and you can do it with healthy food that's good for you, right? The more of that that we get and the more that we support farmers who are growing real food, as those two things, as we, if we lean into that, if we have the leadership and we have, and we look, we have the skill in this country to do it. We have the capability in this country to do it. We need to have the will in this country from the top to have us lean into that as a society, right? And that does need at some point to be backed up with the power of, of law, right? Um, we will then lose our dependency on the unhealthy fast food, right? You hear people all the time talk about, let's lose our dependency on foreign oil. It would be so good for us. What if we lost our dependency on fast, artificial, unhealthy food? That's the thinking. Now, you just talk, there's so many linkages there. We could spend three hours just talking about that piece of yeah. the issue. But I'll give, you, I'll give you one example. We spend a trillion and a half dollars a year fighting the big four food-related diseases, diabetes, cardiopulmonary, obesity, things like that, right? That's the strain on our workforce, uh, missed days uh, at, at work, the insurance costs. I mean, you, you, you want to know why so many things cost so much in our medical system. Look at how much money we're spending on food-related diseases. So what if Michael Bloomberg's instinct to put a tax on sugar in New York was a appreciated for the brilliant sort of idea it was. And if we started to lean into that, what if we didn't subsidize in the form of crop insurance, the farm to freighter economy that is food that's not made for human consumption, but instead start, started to subsidize farmers who were growing food for human consumption. I'm not sure how wonky uh, you are on food issues. Food for human consumption is in America is now de defined as a specialty crop. There are more protections for farmers growing corn for animal feed or grain to be shipped overseas than there are for people who are trying to grow tomatoes and zucchini and corn and string beans for human consumption. It is staggering. It is absolutely staggering to me. And the problems that are created through this are massive. And I'll just give you one example of that. Immigration. 
something that the last five or six presidents have kept trying to tackle and kick down the road. It's immigration reform is not a Trump issue as much as I would like to lay everything at his doorstep because I believe enough of a cement block in the way of progress in this country and enough of a destructive force that I really do believe. I just finished Rage last night. As, as Bob Woodward says at the end of the book, it's unfit to be president, right? We, we need to change that. But the, the incredible thing to me is that when you look at immigration, we have a 5,000 acre corn farm that is raising corn for animal feed or to be turned and processed into something else, not for that for human consumption. That 5,000 acres can be farmed, managed, planted, harvested by five or six people. That's all it takes because they use giant machines to plant. They use giant machines to harvest. I've, I've been on those farms. I mean, that, 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 that's a fact, right? And we documented that in What's Eating America. If you go to, let's just say, a 5,000 acre tomato farm, there is no machine to plant tomato plants. There is no machine to pick them. So because America is addicted to cheap food, in other words, people would recoil in a restaurant or supermarket if they saw how much a tomato really costs, right? Those prices are artificially kept low. So the only way that the farmers can make money is to apply for visas for immigrant and migrant workers to come in and help them. And of course, it feeds a system that also has people and the laws are set up so that those people can look the other way and we can employ undocumented workers. Well, what if we just opened our doors and in, instead of pushing people away, actually embraced folks who wanted to do the work that others didn't want to do. We paid them a living wage and gave them health insurance. They're paying taxes. You know, an illegal, even an illegal immigrant who's in this country, you know, picking strawberries in the Salinas Valley, that they're getting taxes taken out of their paycheck. Doesn't matter whether false IDs. I mean, you you make up the scenario as, as bad as you want. They're still paying taxes. What if we actually remade the system so that we were actually paying those people a fair wage, we're engaging with a labor force that wanted to be here and working? Because by the way, those visas and those migrant workers are picking crab in Maryland. They're picking tomatoes in Tennessee. They're picking uh, corn in Minnesota. They're picking grapes and strawberries in California and every other state in the union. They're even on fishing boats in Alaska. This is a vital, vital, vital issue. And this, this artificially deflated price system that we have for food, if that was corrected, we would actually be eating less of these very naturally very expensive items like beef. If you look at other countries, and I'm not advocating that, that we become Denmark or Vietnam or pick any of a hundred other countries, which is often conflated by people who are on the opposite side of this issue with me. But what if we took some of their best practices? Why did we stop cooking food for kids in schools? Those are the people who actually need the healthiest food we have to offer, the best food we have to offer. By the way, so do seniors in uh, publicly financed homes that are designed uh, to make their last years comfortable. Why do they get the worst food that we could possibly imagine? Most people need the best food 
that we can imagine. We've seen studies. We know kids perform better. Seniors will live longer and need less medical attention. If their food, right, we are what we eat. Mm -hmm. If our food was healthier and better, it affects every American, every family, which is why one of the things that, and it's, it, it seems so wrong to say these words, it's, it's why I'm grateful that COVID-19, our viral pandemic, and our cultural pandemic has kind of peeled back the fog on some of these issues, because for the first time in my lifetime, food is front and center in the discussion. I mean, I, look, MSNBC just had me do a special with Joy Reid on Sunday night on food and the pandemic. There are presidential debates going on. And researchers at the networks that are hosting the debates are reaching out to people like me for reading in networks on the bigger issues on this so they can formulate questions for candidates about this issue. I've been pushing for 30 years to have kitchen table, literal kitchen table issues put in front of a politician. This last election cycle in 2018 and this, and we're obviously getting them already in 2020. 2018 was the first time in my lifetime that food questions were part of the national debate. The first time. Well, even, even going back to 2016, no one talked about the farm bill in the presidential mm -hmm. election. The one that's responsible for uh, 750, I think it's maybe more, I think it's up to 825 billion. I can't keep up because the president keeps knocking things down and so many things change. But it's between 750, 825 billion dollars in the SNAP program, a, a federal program that actually is net net economics positive for people because of the money that it puts back into the system. Just like restaurants are so valued, independent ones, because they put so much money back into the system and they create so many jobs and they are such a vital uh, piece of our, of our economic engine in terms of GDP. If we don't correct our food problems, what's going to happen, and this is the doomsday scenario that I worry most about, uh, because I think it will come quickest. We already have two or three food Americas, right? Eating well in America is a class privilege. So we have this bifurcated system. Most people talk about two food Americas. I really think there's three or four because I think there's layers of this. There are people who are really far below the safety line. Then there are people who are just below the safety line. Then there's people who are hovering at the safety line. They all have different needs, actually. Mm -hmm. Then everyone above it doesn't worry about where their food is coming from. So I think it's vital that we, we have a national discourse about how we're going to feed America how we're going to spend more money on getting people healthy food as a way to correct some of our health and wellness problems. We have an, the national debt's incredible. Congress is debating right now another tranche of, of aid. The HEROES Act has been in front of the Senate now for months and Mitch McConnell won't allow anyone to vote on it. Well, what if we could just cut that trillion and a half dollars that we spend on those four big food-related diseases in half. That's $750 billion. That's a big chunk of change. You start extending that out. What if we were, in fact, subsidizing farmers and getting people back to regionalizing and decentralizing our food system? Creates a mammoth amount of jobs, creates programs that actually go to feeding human beings. What if we, what if we were able to cut off our reliance or reduce our reliance on this cheap, fast food that's killing Americans.
The financial turnaround, it would just take a couple of years. Do you remember when COVID started? We saw those pictures of uh, Venice. Yes. Of the lagoons. Yes. Right? And there were fish swimming in them. Now, I, I'm lucky enough, I've traveled to Venice almost every year for the previous 18, 19 years. And I've stood in those lagoons and I've taken, I've been with fishermen on those lagoons. We, we've told their story. They had to go further and further out away from the city. The moment there was less traffic, and to me it was a great metaphor for how to clear our system. The moment we just slowed down for a couple of weeks, the traffic died, the water cleared, the bivalves started growing again, they started filtering the water, and the fish returned. It wasn't, the fish weren't looking for clear water, the fish are looking for food. That's what they do. So when the bivalves are cleaning the water and the fish can perceive the algae, the microorganisms, the tiny little microplanktons or little shrimps or little crabs, depending what kind of fish they are, they return. Nature is more resilient than we think it is. And believe me, I believe very much in the science. We are in a climate crisis. There are certain things that will not come back. We profiled that in what's in America with the perch and the Great Lakes. But we, we do have the capability of slowing down right now and rebooting our food system. And I think to not do so is criminal. And I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing the visioning and the leadership to do that. You talked about equity and access. We, we are living in a condition of food apartheid in this country. The vast majorities of communities, it's, it's, I, I happen to believe very strongly in what a lot of very passionate advocates talk about. It's, it's not a food desert. It really is a food apartheid system. A, a food desert is classically defined by a certain size community that is a mile or less from a grocery store that has fresh fruit and vegetables and all that other kind of stuff. In a rural economy, uh, in rural cities, rural towns of a certain size, I think it's like eight or nine miles, some, 10 miles, something like that. We've created these horrific food apartheid communities, and the vast majority of them are the rural poor. Mm-hmm. The vast majority, right? Well, Those are the people that need our help the most. It, I mean, it's incredible where we are in D.C. And actually, Sweet Green was founded about half a mile from our apartment. Um, yep. this town. But I mean, if you go a mile in one direction, you end up at, you know, essentially the low income grocery store. And you go three blocks the other, you end up at the Whole Foods. And that's pretty much how the whole city is completely split. I mean, there's so much that comes out of this. One thing, obviously, it's amazing that this stuff isn't more central to the debate, given that there's nothing more central to our lives than food besides mm-hmm. maybe housing. And I want I want to circle back to some of this, but I also want to you know, to give some context to our listeners, everyone knows you from Bizarre Foods. And that was, I watched it constantly throughout high school and middle school. I absolutely loved it. But your life story is absolutely incredible as well. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that and how that shaped how you see the world now from being a drug addict until being a, one of the most famous chefs there is. I think any human being that goes through an incredible tragedy or series of tragedies in their lives and survives has an incredible amount to share with other human beings. 28 and three quarters years sober. It's a long time from my last drink or drug, but I can feel the tears in my eyes just thinking about the what it was like back then uh, for me. And 
it's why I stay so active in my recovery to keep it green right in front of me. The, the, the moment I start talking about my story and don't feel tears in my eyes, I'm, I'm in trouble. Those tears and those emotions are extremely, extremely motivational. Once I sobered up, I was given a choice to either die an alcoholic death or seek uh, spiritual help. For decades, I had been, as an active addict and alcoholic, throwing back the life jacket that people tossed my way while I was drowning because I didn't like the color orange, right? It was ridiculous thinking. Eventually, my life got to the point where I was a user of people, 100% user of people, taker of things, uh, living in an abandoned building, never showered for you know almost a year that I was off the grid, petty thief. I mean, nothing that I'm proud of. I mean, the, 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 the things that I've done in my life as an active addict and alcoholic, I'm not proud of. It's, it's, it's tawdry stuff. But alcohol and, and drugs were my higher power. I did anything for them. And I went from that place where I would lie to you and tell you that I didn't have a problem to that place where I told you, fuck you, I don't care, mm -hmm. right? And when you get to that fuck you, I don't care place, as a human being, whatever brings you there, whether it's poverty, whether it's social injustice, whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's uh, medical conditions, terminal illness. You hear these resounding stories of some of these people who do incredible things with the last months of their life, and they have this amazing attitude about it. There are a lot of people you don't hear about who, you know, are like, well, I don't fuck you, I don't care, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But for people who survive these things in their lives and they come out on the other side of it, we learn in recovery, you, you learn that you need to live your life on, on a different set of values if you want to stay healthy and well. Mm -hmm. And so I live my life now on a different set of values in order to stay healthy and well. And those values over the course of 28 years have become much more crystalline and clear to me. I now have, I, it took me about 15 years of sobriety to realize what actually kept me right-sized, healthy, thinking clearly as much of the time as I can. Um, and that was the concept of, of service, of doing something for other people. I was never more happy. My own personal problems were never more distant than when I was talking to somebody about their life and their issues. When we are constantly living in a state of selfishness, of me-ism, we are clinically and definitively incapable of empathy. And we know that empathy is the key to happiness. So how do you become empathetic? You do things for other people and then your own happiness increases. There is actually a recipe for happiness and it to me and for me, it was doing things for other people. And I developed a little moniker for myself to get into that state of empathy, which I've, I've given talks on. But I, I, there's a talk that I give called Be the Dog. I mean, even Hitler had a dog and the dog loved Hitler. Right. So even the last days in the bunker, Hitler comes in and sits down and he's like, oh, my God, I've just had the worst day ever. And, you know, all his sycophantic toadies and criminals that surrounded him uh, in the last days are like, oh, Hitler, that's awful. But it didn't make Hitler feel better. 
But when the dog jumped up in his lap and just laid its head there and just was with him, if we can be the dog, right? Mm. The dog is the most perfectly empathetic creature that there is. It just wants to be with us. Doesn't want to tell us how to do anything. Doesn't operationalize anything for us. It doesn't tell you how to be a better husband or son or father or employer or employee or colleague or friend. The mm. dog is just there, right? Mm. And if when we harness that energy, we then can be of service in that way. We can extend that. I realized that about 13, 14 years ago, Bizarre Foods had been on for a year or two. My career had, you know, all of a sudden Bizarre Foods exploded and, and got distributed into 160 some odd countries worldwide. And my career went from successful to like, Wow, big platform. So at that point, I had to make a really serious decision about how I wanted to represent myself and what I wanted to stand behind. And that is the end result of that decision is who's talking to you today. I'm very proud of Bizarre Foods. We were able to create an entertainment show that had very important messaging about patience, tolerance, and understanding with other cultures. We we very purposefully, and it was a you know big fight with the production company that was making the show with me. It was a big fight uh, at times with the network that I was working for. But at the end of the day, I'm a very insistent, stubborn person. We got to make sure that the messaging of that show was crystal clear, that the more we understand other cultures, there's no better way to do it than through food the less we're going to define ourselves by our differences, like skin color, taste in music, sexuality, the God or we believe in or don't believe in anything, the color of our skin, where we're from. Because if people can see how other people eat in other worlds, they're like, oh, wow, that looks like my family. Yes. Right? Yeah. Even though they're eating something that I would never think of <laughs> and, you know, they may not even be wearing clothes and I live in a city and they live in a jungle. Looking back on it, the very naive thing that we did, and we now we now see it for what it is, the tendency at times to be highlighting aspects of a culture that maybe we could have put some, some better social boundary definitions around. But I'm looking at that through a 2020 lens, not a 2007 lens. And we also, you know, the mandate was make an entertainment show for a television entertainment network. Had I done this for... And it was a very intentional decision. Had I made that show for PBS and not Travel Channel in, you know, and made that decision, you know, maybe got nominated for award and gotten some applause and that would have been my TV career. Pat Young, who at the time was the head of Travel Channel, said to me, the, the show I pitched him was 75% intelligence, 25% entertainment. He <laughs> said, you flip that around. Yeah. He said, flip it around and come up with a hook and... This will be a hit show all around the world and you'll do more good and influence more people than if you pursue the show you're thinking of. Work with me on this and we'll get all the messaging in there that you want, right? But better to do it in an entertainment show that more people see. And I thought about that and he was right. And I came back to them with the, the hook, uh, the, the original pitch for this show by the way, was I, I had the working title was The Wandering Spoon. Who wants to watch a show called The Wandering Spoon? I mean, that is just awful. 
I, um, that, that could be the name of your memoir, Andrew. It could be. It could <laughs> be. You know, I wanted to go around the world and tell stories about culture through food. And he's like, great. What does that mean? And we eventually narrowed it down to stories from the fringe that other people weren't mm-hmm. talking about as a way to increase patients' tolerance and understanding with other people. And so, and I think that's one of the reasons, even though we didn't point arrows to it or, you know, put lower thirds saying, pay attention, I think the net-net effect of it was that people saw that we need to be respectful of other cultures, we have more in common with people than we have differences, and that through food, we can find a way to understand the issues of the day and sit down with people and solve them. And we have a lot to learn from those countries like Denmark and Vietnam to get back to the point that I got sidetracked from. You know, we learned in that show, the Vietnamese, they don't have big refrigerators in their home. They shop several times a day for food. So their food is super fresh. They live three or four generations to a home as best they can. So there's always someone there to help with kids cook while parents work and things like that. On and on and on. It is a system that really works. One of the biggest, and and I'm not trying to go back to the days of the horse and buggy or put a college dorm room fridge in every house. That's That's not how it works. But the big, I'll just give you one example. Waste in America, we waste 40% of our food, right? You hear that all the time. You guys are aware of that stat, right? We have, you know, 25% plus of people are food insecure and rising. I think that number is artificially low because of the stigma associated with it and all that other kind of stuff. The fact of the matter is, is that we, we waste this incredible amount of food in America. And one of the big reasons we do is that we've been sold a bill of goods that everyone needs this giant sized refrigerator. So what happens when we go to shop? We don't go to the neighborhood vegetable store and butcher and bread shop because we're time poor. We go to the neighborhood supermarket, whatever that looks like for people. Uh, We load up and we're time poor and food is now treated with chemicals and gases and all kinds of things to make it more stable. Even when it's refrigerated, right? That meat that comes in those especially sealed packs, right? We'll keep it fresh for weeks. There's a gas, an inert gas that's piped in there. Well, by the end of the week, because one night, oh, the the Millers invited us out for dinner. Oh, Bobby's got soccer practice and we're just going to order in pizza. You know, by the way, and I'm talking about for the 60% of America that lives that way, the other 40 don't, right? Those We have several food Americas, right? So I'm just talking about that top 60%. We're wasting all this food. You look at all the cultures around the world that utilize every single piece of everything. Do you, do you, uh, you guys probably don't remember, but you know there was a time 20 years ago where everyone ate the tips of the broccoli and threw away all the stalks. Every other country in the world ate the stalks of broccoli. They, they just cut it and sauteed it or did something else with it or turned it into soup. We've created habits in this country around waste and hunger. I truly believe culinary genocide and culinary racism where we we keep other people down and maintain systems of power in place and one of the tools that is used for that is through food Mm -hmm. um now when i bring this up people are like oh that can't happen in america that's not america it's like well that actually is america when you look at what are called food deserts or food apartheid when you look at the rise of dollar stores when you look at what food is subsidized when you look at who's growing it all the issues that i talk about now in in my shows and on conversations like this it's all designed that way we truly need to get 
back to an America that is for all people. The, the late Senator Paul Wellstone from Minnesota, who was my earliest political mentor, my favorite line of his that he would say all the time is, we all win when we all win. That really is true. And if we don't make a food America, a healthy food America, work for everyone, we are going to keep these inequitable systems in place, some of which are literally killing us. That's a powerful message, and it, it pivots perfectly to our top five list, how COVID has peeled back some of America's biggest problems, and we have a lot of work to do. But, you know, I do want to say that in, in a very serious way, your personal story, how you battled through the profound depths of addiction and despair in your 20s, being homeless for almost an entire year before, I know, being rescued, traveling back to Minneapolis and working in a uh, kitchen where you distinguished yourself and became now one of the world's premier chefs. If that's not an inspirational and hopeful message to everyone listening, wondering if we can solve some of these problems that COVID's exposed, then I don't know what is that inspirational story. So well, thank I'm, you very much. It, it's powerful. And the top five ways that we right now in America need to rethink food. I think the first thing that we need to do is we need politicians for uh, expanding the Food RX program that got, I think, $30 million in the last farm bill, a drop in the bucket. But the idea there was that uh, doctors could actually write prescriptions for food for people that would allow them to go to places and instead of giving them expensive, I'll just use diabetes, expensive medicines and getting people addicted to injecting themselves with insulin, which we know that diabetes can be managed depending on what type you have and how early it's caught. So I, I think uh, stimulating and propping up and subsidizing any system like the Food RX program that increases our ability to eat well and exercise is of extreme value, right? I mean, we're talking about food, but you know, these health clubs and insurance companies that would give you a hundred dollars off your your health insurance if you went to a health club and could show every quarter that you went a certain number of times. Well, that's not available for all Americans. Wow. But what if we were able to make that available for all Americans? Access and equity is the other one. We, we it, those are really big words, and you know, you, you, I, I hate to use umbrellas uh, as my top five because you know I, I think we're about specifics. Right. Um, but if if we don't start to spend state, federal, and local dollars access to healthy food, banding SNAP, be uh, lowering the bar or entry into that program, SNAP works, right? I think for every dollar that goes in, like a dollar eight, a dollar twenty-five, somewhere in there. If I, you know, my stats are a little off, but it's it's a it's a dollar positive program. It works. I think we need to change the way, I think number three is we need to change, uh, subsidize food, the makers in this country. That is, you know, in the farm and freighter movement. I, I don't want to tell a cotton farmer that he can't sell cotton overseas. That's a valuable part of our global economy. We need to be uh, doing that. But I don't believe that that cotton farmer in Texas is the only one deserving of crop insurance. Mm -hmm. What about the, the, the person working a five acre family farm in Tennessee that is growing all his food for human consumption. 
We have to make it easier. We have to make the system more equitable for the makers. And we need a complete overhaul of those laws and regulations to fit a 2020 model with a 2020 national and global population. I say global because trade is such an important part about what we grow and where we grow it in America. And we have to address that now, not only because it affects health and our economy, but with climate change. What we're seeing right now is you see what's on in California right now with the flat, with the fires. You see all these tropical storms. First time ever, I think we had 15 active storms. Are they all going to hit? No. Are they a sign that this is going to rip through? You know, we lost, we lost the Colorado peach season this year because of storms in Colorado in early, uh, mid-August. I mean, those things are radical. And by changing how we subsidize and work with production and makers, we really can make a difference. On that production and maker strategy, you can also throw in how we treat factory workers, maybe three B, <laughs> if I can get five and a half. Bs, yeah. If I get five and a half, three uh, B would be would be a similar program, federally mandated, backed by law, that forced us and created a mandatory system for employers to provide health insurance and living wages for people. No one can live in America on fifteen dollars an hour. It's impossible. It can it cannot be done. So we need to change that because we have an underclass of people making our food, growing it, packing it, planting it, shipping it, cooking it, serving it. We have to, and that includes restaurants. We have to create systems with living wages. I think personal education. We, we have created an atmosphere here in America where, where science is denigrated and denied. We see it in a lot of big issues that I, I won't even bring up. I can just leave it right there, full stop, right? Science is under attack. But remember, it's science that tells us that we should be limiting our salt and sugar intake and our fat intake so, to a certain amount. It's science that tells us what the healthy diet should be. You talk about that Travis Scott burger. I find that a front on two levels. Number one, it's extremely unhealthy and no one should be eating it. Number two, it's marketing to kids and young people. Yeah. My son is 15. He likes listening to music. McDonald's was not a thing for him. We drove by that sign, right? <laughs> He's aware of it. And it's like, oh, huh, right? It, it piques his interest. We are supporting the exact wrong thing in the world. I want the Travis Scotts in the world to be supporting the salad at Sweetgreen. I want the, I want, and, and by the way, there are a lot of Travis Scotts in the world coming out and, and doing yeah. that. Right. I mean, you know, Brad Paisley and his wife, for gosh sakes, have created a free grocery store in Nashville, Tennessee that works. You know, we see a lot of people. I mean, you look at the work that Common is yep. doing uh, yep. on that front, that personal education piece around the science of what we eat and what's best for us needs to be out there. We're not teaching it in schools anymore and we're not talking about it at the kitchen tables. And when there's an atmosphere in America, you know, we saw it with immigration issues. You know, when we elect a president who says Mexico is sending us criminals and rapists, I mean, that's that's ludicrous. Right. It's, it's insanity. We're not. But look at what it does to inspire other people to believe that Mexicans somehow are an issue on that level. It's nuts. 
it's the same thing with science. And that science floats down to food and the climate crisis and those things are interwoven. So the personal education, I think, piece is really important. And I think the other one, and I mentioned Denmark before, a lot of the Scandinavian countries have really taken the lead on this. What the current administration has been labeling for the last couple of years since 2018 and the taking back of Congress as a quote unquote, hostile socialist takeover of America, uh, again, is ludicrous political posturing. But we can't have these social issues become political footballs and talking points. When we look at things like time poverty and financial poverty in America, we have to make an equitable and just system for other people. And that a big piece of that will be food, right? That's what a lot of people you, which one of you maxes said at the beginning of food and shelter. Those are the two bed ones throw uh, health on there as well. The number one role of government in America is to ensure the safety of its citizens at its very core at its very core. That's what it is. So I want our government to keep people safe by making sure that we have living wages and take people out of poverty that will cure some, some, and, a, and, and enough of our time poverty issues. I have friends, I have people who work here in my office that have to work two jobs and they have children. So they're not around their kids enough. So the outcome for those kids, and these are good parents, kids need their parents around. I don't wanna roll back the clock 150 years. I don't want to remake what's going on here. We just need to have a common sense approach to how we're paying people so that we can we can alleviate the time crunch that people are in. And part of that involves being able to cook, okay? Because when you're time poor, you do not have time to cook. The thing that I hear the most from everyone, you know, who, we have a lot of people who tune in every Thursday to my Instagram Live AZ Cooks program. And the, the biggest question we get is, I don't have time, which is why I try to do the food in real time in 15 minutes or less to show people you can cook something healthy and yeah. good in a short amount of time. I do all my cooking for my family on Sundays and I freeze it and you know I'll saute two or three pounds of, of kale and greens and I can use it in a pasta one night and as a side with a piece of grilled chicken the next night and I can buzz it with all the leftover vegetables in a blender after boiling it in some stock for a couple minutes and create a quick soup for Saturday afternoon. And the next day I know it's Sunday again. I've gotten three meals out of those greens. We have to do more to alleviate the dollar poverty, which helps the time poverty, which allows pe both allow people to cook more, spend more time with family. And it's all, it's all wrapped up in a food solution there. I think those are societal advances. I don't think it's socialism. I think it's it's societal advancement. I think it's being smart and realizing that we need, look, I'll leave you with this thought. People come to me all the time and they say, well, kids won't eat fish. So I'm not gonna cook that piece of salmon or halibut or trout or whatever it is. And I remind them that biology and science tells us that kids will actually eat anything. They're like goats. They are like goats. They take their social cues from us. Kids are not born genetically disposed to eat crunchy fried things and white and beige things and bad bread and all that kind of stuff. They're not. Just look at children in Japan. They live in households where fish is eaten all the time. Some of the first food children eat in Japan is seafood.
And so they grow up eating it. It's a parental issue. So if we increase the awareness and the time and the dollars for all Americans, we all win when we all win, then we can pass that on to our children. My child eats everything because we put everything out there in front of him. Mm-hmm. When he was a little kid teething, they, they had these little mesh bags. You guys probably had them when you were babies because you're young enough, where you would put like frozen grapes and he could like chew on it. It numbed out his teeth, but it also was good for them. And it's just, you know, you put food in those bags. When we got them as a gift, I started using him rather than pureeing food or serving him pre-made food. I would just take fish and green bean, do it as different courses and just put it in a little mesh bag and let him suck the food out of there. So by the time he started eating solid food at around one or whenever that was, salmon wasn't a strange flavor for him. Green beans wasn't, weren't a strange flavor for him. We, we have to get active and remake food for our kids. And that starts, that starts with creating an equitable system in our country around work and pay. So that would be number five, because it, it really does all start there. Well, Andrew, I, I've been so influenced by watching your shows throughout my life that I'm going to be feeding my kids sheep's brains and other <laughs> uh, bizarre foods. Now, I, I honestly, we can't thank you enough. This has been such a pleasure to speak with you. I have, do you have, do you have time for one final question? Yeah, of course. I've actually got two. One's a rapid fire. One that has a little bit of substance to it. First one is your favorite country for food. What yeah. country has the best food you've been all over the world? And the second one, you know, I'm back when I, it's not an exaggeration to say I watch your show all the time in high school. And I'd watch you one day and I'd watch Anthony Bourdain the next day. Both you guys, huge fans. I'm, I realized since then, I mean, you guys are both from New York originally, right? Both, both from New York, both, both ex-heroin addicts, uh, yeah. both, both went to Vassar College. I could go on and on about the similarities between yeah. uh, my late friend and I. So if, yeah, I just, I would love to hear some of your thoughts, you know, what, be, having been a friend of his, um, you know, some of your thoughts and... Sure. Well, the, 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 the first question was about food and country. I, it, you know, it's really difficult uh, to say that. I don't think Japanese food is any better or worse than Italian food or is any better or worse than, than German food is. Um, we, I, I, I find uh, flavor fatigue uh, to be something that I suffer from. So I, I like to make sure that I'm eating from a broad range of, of things. And I think it's very, very important for a lot of people to remember. Um, we crave physically, we have a physical reaction to certain foods that are loaded with umami, right? That indescribable fifth taste, but it's actually very scientific. Umami is based on foods that have glutamates in them, okay? Glutamates are naturally present in your body chemically. They're naturally present in foods like tomatoes. They're most prevalent in foods that are fermented, Okay, that's why people like beer and soy sauce and hot sauce and other and pickles, right? So we tend as culturally, if you look at it, to sort of gravitate and lean into food from countries where there's a lot where there's a lot of those glutamates. I think it's the reason why tomato sauce and Italian food kind of exploded here in this country. And it's delicious. And Italian food is very, it's regional, it's seasonal, and it relies on very few ingredients in a dish and very few ingredients on a plate. So it honors everything. Japanese food honors everything because of their uh, spiritual belief in Shinto that is a minimalist theory, and that applies to their food as well. 
and if you're not understanding this idea about Japanese food and its simplicity, just look at its neighbor, just roughly next door in, in a country like Thailand, where it's the exact opposite. It's a lot of ingredients. It's all about the interplay of salty, sour, sweet, and spicy. You can look at all these countries and none are any better or worse than the others. I do default when people ask me, what's the, your favorite food to the place that I always went last right? Because that's in my memory and I'm always, I, I'm so captivated by it. But I think I'm somewhat unique in that. I'm, I'm overly focused on that. And I haven't been traveling for a while. So I'll answer this question a little bit differently today. I think, without a doubt, unequivocally, the two greatest cuisines on planet Earth are the cuisines of Mexico, because that's regional. It's also pre-colonial and post-colonial, right? So we have to define our terms here. Cuisines of Mexico and the cuisines of China. And I'll tell you why. From ingredient to technique to variety of availability, they have the greatest depth and breadth. And they influenced so many other foods. Historically, when you go way, 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 way back, yes, of course, there were tribal people living in what is now Okinawa, right, who were cooking differently than people in central China were. But as, as, as China grew and as the different empires that came out of what is now that part of the world were on the spice route and spread their food everywhere, the influence was massive on Korean food, Thai food, Laotian food. I could go on and on and on. And for depth and breadth, I don't think anything competes with Chinese and Mexican cuisines, plural. From them come so many other things. So I, I would say that those two pillars are kind of what sit everything else up. By comparison, as lauded in this country, because it's white, Italian and French food, yeah. is artificially propped up. I love French and Italian food as, as much as anything. Adore it. But it's very small relative to the symphony of what's available in Mexican and Chinese food culture. I think we need to understand foundationally, again, and historically, that it's white European food that came over here into America and propped that up. Ironically, it's the food of the Southeast that is America's cuisine. And that food was created by enslaved Africans, by indigenous Caribe Indians, by Latin and Amer Indian and pre-colonial tribal influences that came from Central and South America up into the islands, then up north into the Southeastern part of the United States. If you ask me to define what America, what American food is, other than the food of our first peoples, which needs to be recognized, right? And we have thousand tribes all over the United States, including Hawaii and Alaska, and their food roots are very, very important. But if you take indigenous first peoples foods out of the equation, America's food is the food of the American Southeast. Wow. So that's that answer. Fantastic. And then... Yeah. And then Tony, the most dynamic, charismatic, and amazing person that I have met in the last 30-plus years of my life. He was brilliant and funny and could spend... I mean, he could teach a, a college-level class on post-punk music 
or 1950s film or food. He truly was symphonic in his capabilities and his knowledge and his ability to teach and entertain. Um, and you talk about empathy. Here was a man who could influence, uh, who was a global influence simply based on sitting down and eating with other people. I'm so glad that I got to be uh, a part of his life and he a part of mine, even for a short time. The world is certainly dimmer without him. Who, when they think of Anthony Bourdain and thinks about what's going on in America in the fall of 2020, uh, doesn't wish he was still with us. I, I, I wonder what pithy admonishment filled with expletives he would have fired over the bow of so many boats over the last couple of years. He is truly missed. A, a great, great, great man. I'll tell you one quick funny story. Please. He would text me photos that would always just have his feet in them <laughs> because he'd be sitting on his bed and his daughter, uh, young at the time, seven, would be lying the opposite way with her feet pointed at the headboard and her head down at the end of the bed watching TV. And the picture he would send me and text me would be of it, his feet, which were very big, by the way, the back of his daughter's head and the TV that would have bizarre foods on it. And I wish I had saved those texts and printed them out because they were, you know, paragraphs of the most profane, hysterically funny, friend-to-friend <laughs> -friend shit giving of him like, you know, I'm with my kid. We had all these plans, but there's, it's Sunday, but there's a bizarre foods marathon and she just loves your show. It's hysterical because I would fire back at him a couple days later, a video that I would take of sitting on the couch and Noah in the beanbag chair, my son, same age as his daughter, watching one of Tony's shows. And I would put the, vi the video on so that he could hear the sound. And I'd be like, Noah, buddy, don't you want to watch one of daddy's shows? And he would be like, no. <laughs> I, I like this show. I like this show better. And we would, he and I would laugh trading these things back and forth because his daughter, like most kids, cared less about what her dad did yeah, right. for work because he was just dad. And like my show and my son, the same thing. My, there are shows... There are shows that are hosted by people that have been on for four or six episodes and you've never heard of them again. And my son has seen reruns of it and pointed at them and said, why can't you be more like that guy? I think you'd be, I think you might, you, you might be a little more successful. And it, it takes everything I can to like look at him and go, what? You know? And it's, and I don't say that with ego. I say it to highlight this sort of funny exchange that Tony and I would have uh, together. And when we finally were able to introduce our children at uh, a weekend in Florida many years ago, it was amazing because his daughter wanted to hang out with me at this event we were at. And Noah just followed Tony around every week. We didn't have to worry about where he was at this big party because all we had to do was look for the gray hair because Tony was tall, yeah. standing above everyone, and then look down. And there would be Noah who literally rose and fell uh, on his smile. Um, he's a great man. Well, Andrew, you talked about the, the depth and breadth of the flavors of Chinese and Mexican cuisines, but I can tell you that this conversation 
no had the depth and breadth of any cuisine in the world. Uh, oh, thank you for you know the substantive ideas for America's future and how we can improve structurally and specifically, and then also your incredible story. And then th these tales at the end, I do wish too, that we could see some of those screenshots of Anthony Bourdain's feet. Th they're those pretty good. They're, yeah. they're, it's the profanity of the, the, the idea. <laughs> it, it was, we would laugh so hard about it. I, I will leave you with this for folks that are interested in, in more level of detail or partners on our partner page and organizations we work with. Uh, for folks who want to dive into some more of this, it's a great place to get started. And thank you very much for the inspiring conversation. It's, it's great to, uh, to chat with, with you today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, I, Andrew. This is really, this was terrific. Andrew. Can't thank you enough. You talked about tears welling up in your eyes at your story. I mean, truly, every time I read it, hear it, it it's un unbelievable. And, and specifically, too, how it was a random friend. I think you said I, in past interviews, Clark or yeah. something came to your rescue. And, and you had that intervention that, that saved your life. And now look what you're doing. I mean, yeah, you're I mean, in between seconds, seconds and inches, baby. Seconds and inches. That's what, that's what life is all about. Absolutely. Well, well Andrew, we got more than seconds with you. We're, we can't thank you enough. Take care in the Twin Cities. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was a three-course meal. So thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Top 5 with Max and Max. We hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe on Spotify or YouTube or iTunes, and tell your friends. We appreciate you listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Top 5 with Max and Max. See you then.